From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. Hello, my name is Aisha White. I am the Immigration Manager at Nashville International Center for Empowerment, a local nonprofit that provides social services for refugees and immigrants in Middle Tennessee. Welcome to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads how to be an anti-racist, being filmed in the grand reading room of the Nashville Public Library. I'm joined by my colleagues, Fatima and Sabina. Hi, Aisha. Um, thank you for having me here today. My name is Sabina Moedin. I'm the executive director of the American Muslim Advisory Council. Uh, I was born and raised in Nashville. My parents are originally from Bangladesh. They came in the 60s. I grew up here in the 70s and 80s um, and then graduated in 93 from Vanderbilt University. Uh, with my work with AMAC, um, uh, I work with the Muslim community across Tennessee uh, and help our uh, wider community understand uh, Muslims and, and the needs we have. And um, I do a lot of talking about Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism. So I am very excited to be here today. Thank you. Hi, it's great to be here also. Um, it's such a privilege really to speak about this really poignant topic. Um, my background is uh, actually in biomedical research and I uh, have taken a break from basic science to mainly to raise my kids, but in my time, I've also been able to serve in some community organizations. So mainly I've been working with the Islamic Center of Nashville. Uh, I have been vice president at that institution for two years, operations director for one year, and currently I'm a board member. So I've always, it's just, I feel very much at home in that community uh, and able to serve our larger community when within that, that space. All right, thank you. So today we are discussing chapter two of Dr. Kennedy's book called Dueling Consciousness Through an Immigrant and Refugee Lens. So first I would like to give you three definitions that were given at, in this chapter. First one is assimilationist, the belief that certain racial groups are culturally or behaviorally inferior but can be developed. So saying people of color can be developed to become more like white people. Then the second definition was belief that there is a racial hierarchy. Some races are superior to others because of their DNA. Um, and then the third one which is anti-racist, which is what he wants us all to strive to be, which believes that racial groups are equal in all the ways that they are different. So start with these definitions and how do you see them reflected in the immigrants community? So, uh, for immigrants, you know, from the time you come here, you hear the word assimilation. You know, it's an ex expectation people have on you that you have to be assimilated. And then once you're assimilated, then somehow you're American. And until you get to that point, you're still kind of back, you know, who you, you, you know, uh, you're still connected to that culture you came from or that country you came from and you're not fully American mm -hmm. um, and so but but it's used to box us in you know uh, it's used to limit um, how we express ourselves and how uh, free we feel to be ourselves 
Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I felt it was very powerful to read the author and it was very refreshing to see him just put in words that assimilation is racism. And I, I can follow that train of thought in a cerebral way, but to see it in words was so refreshing to me because it's truly racism to feel that one majority race is superior than a particular minority race in a particular geography. It's forcing, it's putting this burden on the minority race to conform to values that might not represent them. And he talks about the shame that's also associated with that. There's a pride of, if you, in his example, he describes his parents, if you work hard and you make it, but there's a shame associated with, I'm not really this part of this culture. This is not true to my ancestry. Why can't I celebrate my ancestry and still work hard and make it, like he says, into the middle class or wherever, achieve your professional goals? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Because he talked about how black people always feel their two-ness, right? So it's not only black people, so it's for immigrants. Immigrants are from various different races, I guess. So um, we, have, we have the Burmese, the Nepali, they don't fit into either black or white or any of those, right? But they feel their two-ness because they try to fit into the American culture, which is a majority culture, which is the white culture. So I remember when I was in Nigeria one time and um, I had been living here for a long time and I went home and this, my neighbor was telling her daughter like, oh, come and meet this white auntie. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, oh, you're so American, you're white. And I was like, wow. And it's really just like, oh yeah, to be American is to be white, is what we, we all think about, it. that's what you see in the movies. So then the, the black people are kind of like, well, we're American too. Or the immigrants that came from India or wherever, they're American too. So that's kind of, it's changing now. So with that dual consciousness, it's always there, right? Um, so W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in his book, which is, um, Kendi, uh, I guess, quoted him in his book, and he says, black people always feel a sense of looking at oneself through the eyes of others, right? So how can this dueling consciousness nourish a sense of pride in your, in your black identity and also maybe um, cultivate shame? Yeah. Well, um so this dueling consciousness, you see it a lot um, with uh, children, right? They come here and at, in their home environment, their parents are expecting them to uphold the tradition, um, the re religious rituals, um, and, and, and they conform to it at home. But then they go to school where you have a whole different set of expectations on them. And like most children, they just want to fit in, right? They just want to fit in. And so, so and that's where you see the assimilation and that dueling consciousness where um, you're one way at home and then you're totally a different person at school. And, and, and it's hard. It, it's hard. But then I think sometimes kids come to that sense of, um, the, and, and it's hard, not everyone does, but that sense of, wait, I have something worthwhile at home. And how, to, how do I express that? How can I 
be a part of the community, fit in, but still like openly express who, who I am. And, and I think um, you, you live in a world where um, you're expected to be one way and then it makes you think about who you really are. And, and I think that's where you feel um, that sense of pride um, in your upbringing and your culture. But then that's where you can also feel shame where when you're in that environment, when you're around people, you're expected uh, to be assimilated, expected to be American or, or part of that white culture. You don't want to tell people about what you do at home. You don't want to tell how, how you eat your food or the kind of food you eat or, or your cultural traditions. You keep that a secret. You know, and that happens with a lot of kids because um, it's very hard. You know, how, how do you explain that other whole part of you uh, to people who don't understand, who look down upon that, that part of your identity? So, um, you know, in some, sometimes it kind of, you know, makes you really think about your identity and then um, you come out stronger for it. But then sometimes it, it really just kind of, makes you doubt who you are and you know because no matter how much you assimilate especially if you have a background if you're a person of color your skin color is not going to change no matter how much you assimilate if you have a different religion your religion's not going to change and so um, that makes it very hard yeah i think exclusion is a real barrier and like sabina was saying first let's say in our case, both she and I, it's a religious practice that's very much a part of your daily life. It's not, our experience with our religion is something that we wouldn't just entertain on, say, Sunday for a service in the morning. Our religious experience is something that is very vibrant in every day, besides just prayer that's built into your schedule. So even as an adult, if you're in a workplace, I'm always sort of thinking, like she said, it's a little bit of a secret. I'm always kind of thinking about, where am I going to pray at? I have specific times. I kind of need privacy. I need to get away. People think it's really weird. Like in a, different parts of the country, it's a little different. Maybe in the South, it's a little more acceptable to even sort of revere this concept of God. But in other parts of the country, even that is, it's much more um, secular. And that's the mainstream, that secularism is also associated with modernity, it's associated with sort of an education, like in, in the field of science, it's kind of associated with a scientific understanding. So to be not secular is even in conflict with your professionalism. So the spirituality is something that one learns to kind of either keep private or slowly, of course, as you develop strong relationships with your department, it becomes a known thing. But these are just little examples of assimilation. You have to figure out how to kind of be a part of the group, but still really your own personal uh, background and your, your roots. Everyone has a heritage, whether you're right. white, black, right? Our heritage is like right. a tree. I feel it's so critical to nourish that, to be able to grow. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of America also, because so many people come here from different places and like add to the richness of the culture. So you bring some things from different places, but it's also that feeling of do I really fit in? You know, so I, I mean, it's, it's been, I guess more now people are thinking about it, but like the history of America just shows all the different cultures that have come over time that add to the richness of the, of the country. 
Yeah, so to be, to be American is not just to be white, right? So, um, and that's another thing that the writers, so it used to be where to be American is to be white, and white is not to be Negro. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I never, I mean, you always, I kind of knew that that was true, but to see it written down in plain, and you're just like, oh, well, that is how we think. When you say, oh, you're American. Like even now, sometimes in my work, when uh, people, I ask them um, where they're from or where somebody's from, they'd be like, oh, he's American because he's white. And then there'll be somebody else that's next to me. He's like, I'm like, well, he's American too. And he's just like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah I guess he's American too. <laughs> and then you're just kind of like, okay, we're, we're all Americans. We're just, you know, different, different races. So that has been quite interesting. So we'll move on to one of the, um, I guess, the things that he wrote that really stuck, like struck me. Um, it says, Americans have long been trained to see deficiencies in people rather than policy. People are in our faces and policies are distant, right? So, but the people that wrote the policies wrote these policies from these either assimilationist views or segregationist views. So the problem, and then they make it be like the problem is in behavior, then the policies are not what are keeping black people down. Black people are keeping themselves down, right? So if you're thinking about it from how is this affecting uh, society, is that these beliefs are ingrained in maybe how they wrote the policy. Maybe this is how it's always been. I just didn't think about it. I don't even know that there's a word or people were conscious of this is maybe how they thought. Because um, I wasn't conscious of that either. It's just like now you're putting words to, to say this policy is, is coming from a segregation um, that separates people, I guess. Um, so do you, guys, do you guys agree? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? What he was saying? Oh, yeah. I, I can understand exactly what you mean. It's so much easier. I think he said, you know, people have a face so you can see it. And maybe for the positive spin is that you want to fix it. So in his example of his parents, he wanted, they wanted to fix their community. But without really thinking that there are so many policies in place to keep that community down, why not at least address that too? You don't have to abandon this idea of, you know, he talks about liberation, so you don't have to abandon that. But the policies also, like he describes it like cutting off a ladder. Yeah. And it's very true, right? Yeah, like, um in the Muslim community, you think about the policies on a national level that um, you see the war on terror, right? And, and, those, and then the policies that come out of it um, to scrutinize the Muslim community and to create this um, idea that somehow Muslims are a security threat. And, and so then that's the way people look at us and, and, and treat us. And so, so then, you know, people go back and say, well, it must be something wrong with the religion. And they don't go back to the policies that were created or why they were created. And so then the discussion doesn't, discussion's not centered around the policy or around the war on terrorism, it's, it's about Islam. And, and of course, that affects our community. And, but then we see it with immigrant communities, say, um, 
like English only. And, you know, that's an assimilation policy that they tried to uh, pass in Nashville. And the idea that, you know, you shouldn't be speaking another language or you, you, don't, you shouldn't be needing translation services and whatnot. Um, but, you know, not, not talking about what, you know, that, you know, immigrants just need some help. Everyone will wants to learn right. English, right? right. Everyone well, wants to learn English. Right. <laughs> it's not easy. You don't just learn it overnight. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but then the discussions around the policy and, and it's like, look, they don't want to learn. They're not even trying to assimilate. They're not even trying to be a part. They want to be separate. Um, and, and that, again, separate uh, separation kind of, um, you know, having that unequal separation that they're, you know, they must have um, lower standards, their culture is not as good, they need to come up to American standards. Right. Yeah. Yes, so that's what the... Uh... And can I add one thing, Aisha? Yes. She, Sabina said about the example of terrorism in the Muslim community, that's so relevant because in his book, he described, he said, again, a very simple point that has anyone ever correlated unemployment rates with increase in violence? So it's not, he describes the drug war, and it's such a simple thing. It's like, if you want to fix, if you really want to treat the drug war, address unemployment rather than incarceration being a solution. Unemployment would be a solution. You know, so it's the same thing that, why is there violence and terrorism? It's not inherent in a religious, identity, it's not inherent in a racial identity, it's a simple human need right. for employment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, okay, so then he moves on to the anti-racist policies. So anti-racism comes from believing that groups, racial groups are civilized, so the policies should be geared towards reducing inequalities and creating equal opportunities, and which is what America is like founded on, right? Um, and there's like this, the, at Ellis Island when they, when they received the immigrants back, and it was like welcoming them and, you know, bring your, you know, diversity, bring your best, bring your, and so everybody could like live together. So this is how, well, this is like the founding principle, but somewhere along the line it's kind of gotten lost where they want people to like change so much. Um, so, but if you go back to thinking about it, it's like there's so much good in, the, in all these different uh, communities and different um, uh, cultures that are coming and it enriches our lives to learn from them and to see why they do things. And then you know, it also helps you think differently about, oh, well, I never thought about it that way. You can learn something from all these other various cultures. So. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I guess I would just end with, um, I was thinking about solutions or outcomes from this small bit that we've read. And I think that if you could just approach each other and our neighbors with just a sort of recognition, it doesn't even have to be this open celebration, but just a sort of recognition that everybody has a beautiful heritage and roots, and I, we all have that. Again, irrespective of where we came from. So I think that then gives you a context to see that person as a person, just like you, right? Well, you know, I think the idea that 
there's one definition of being American has <laughs> has to uh, be reimagined because obviously Americans no longer you know watching baseball, eating apple pie. Um, <laughs> it's so much more. And you know, when my children were growing up, I, I would tell them, you know, who you are defines what America is. You know, you don't have to be something. You just by who you are define uh, Amer Americans. Um, you know, we, we still see the policies like just recently, um, you know, in, with uh, student athletes, if a girl wears a scarf or hijab, they have to have special permission to do so. And, and so then again, that's a similar, you know, policy. And so the, you know, anti-racism would be, you know, that there, 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 nobody needs an exception. No, nobody needs permission. Um, to be equals in, in any space. Um, and so it, it's, it's looking at things one, one policy at a time and, and challenging it. And when we have to be committed to that. That's great. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us in our, and tuning into our discussion today. For more information and more episodes, you can go to www.justconversations.org. And next we'll be um, discussing chapter three on power. And we hope to see you there. Thank you. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Farrisee. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit justconversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at Just Conversate, on Instagram at Just Conversaciones, or on Facebook at Just Conversate.